Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Reading out of the book of Genesis. Surprise. Chapter 48. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age. He could hardly see, so Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them, embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground, and Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Reading on 17 through 20, when Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased, so he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. No. Uh, my father, this, is the one, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, in your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And so he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word today, but also upon our hearts upon our minds, that we might receive and understand and apply these truths to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. For those who may have just walked into our conversation, we began last September a series entitled Origin Story. It was taking apart the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And um, in a classic origin story, uh, it tells us where we come from. It it has great insights into our character, to what shaped and designs and, and established us as a people. And the origin story we find in Genesis is critical to the understanding of both Christianity, our own faith, our own destiny, as well as our own history. And so um, the purpose of this journey has been to, to kind of wrap all that up. And today we're going to conclude this series in origin story, um, the gospel. There's a small bite of scripture that I just read to you now that I want to kind of expound on a bit, and then I want us to summarize where we've been. And so this portion is just a little bit to conclude the book of Genesis. What we have here is Joseph and his family have been reunited uh, in Egypt. Jacob, the original name, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has become Israel. Uh, God has renamed him. He's had his 12 sons. Joseph's uh, one of them. They're now reunited in Egypt where there's been provision for them. They're starving, but because of Joseph going before them and all that was wrapped up, we discussed last week, uh, they, they are able to come together. And they're finding support in, um, 
Egypt, and this is where they're going to be for hundreds of years. And so if you wonder, how did the children of Israel, how did these tribes get to the Jewish people to, to Egypt? This is how they get there. And the next book, Exodus, talks us how they came out and why that was important. One of the things that's interesting today, different from practically any other time we've taken communion, is that generally speaking, when we're receiving communion, we're looking back to the events of the Passover this time, we're in a position where we're going to be looking actually forward to an event that has not yet taken place, but we can see the glimmerings of it and what's going to be happening. So Jacob slash Israel, uh, he's getting old, his eyesight's failing, and Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to be blessed, to have the, the, the blessing being done. And we're going to see uh, a blessing being done for all the boys, in fact, in a moment of time. Um, these boys appear to be relatively young, at least I sincerely hope so, because uh, when he brings them, they sit on the knee, either one on the knees of, of Israel, who's an old man at this point. So I hope they're young kids. Um, otherwise, you've got these 50-year-old, 40-year-old guys sitting on this guy's knees. They get off, there's a bowing down, and then he brings the boys forward with uh, um, his one son, who's the oldest, Manasseh, ready to receive the right hand of blessing from his father, and the younger one, Ephraim, receiving the left hand of blessing. There was a real connotation with that. But at the last minute, uh, Israel does a switch up, and he, he crosses over, and he takes the younger one and gives him the right hand blessing, which elevates him over his brother. And Joseph's disturbed at this. He's like, no, you're, you're, you're not seeing right. You're having a problem here. No, you're, you're wrong on this. He tries to move it. And uh, Israel has none of that. He says, no, I know what I'm doing here. In fact, the language here is actually kind of interesting. Um, uh, no, my father, this is the one. Put your right hand on his head. And he doesn't say, yeah, I know. He just says, I know, my son. I know. Is that mild rebuke there. I, I know, my son. I, I know. I know what I'm doing. Okay? Uh, and even though Manasseh is going to be great, Ephraim is going to be greater. And we see in this a couple of things. One, there's a prophetic word going on here, and we find that, in fact, Ephraim, that tribe does become one of the greatest. At one point in time, the northern uh, um, section of Israel is all referred to as Ephraim. Uh, and so there's something prophetic about this. It's also another situation where God is flipping things from the norm. Our way of doing things and the way of the world is the, the, the first, uh, you know, uh, the become greatest, and the older all that issue is, he's saying, no, we're going to flip things. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. There's some change of order that's going into play here. And so he puts Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Now, um, one thing we'll say real quickly on this, too, is he goes on then to bless all his other sons, and Judah, we note, is actually the fourth in line, but he's now given authority over everyone else. And we've tracked already Judah's decline and ascendancy in what's taken place in previous conversations. And so in Genesis chapter 49, a little later on as he's blessing all the boys, most of which are not positive in his blessing, he comes to Judah. You are a lion's cub, Judah, 49, 9 through 10. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. And we get from this a phrase that you see over and over again in scripture. And this is the term lion of Judah. It's pointing towards a figure and it's a name for Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, because he descends through the line, line of Judah, and Judah's referred to here as a lion. Also, if you've ever wondered why C.S. Lewis uses the whole Aslan lion thing, this is where he draws that from, the idea of Christ or the Christ figure being a lion figure of some type. 
Um, it goes on to say, the scepter will not depart from Judah. This is how we know it's linked to that. The ruler's staff from between his feet until, until he to whom it belongs shall come. In other words, Judah's going to have a certain ascendancy and there's going to be a certain leadership. Why? To point towards one who's going to come, who it says in the final line, and the obedience of the nations will be his. This is all pointing towards Jesus Christ, this line of Judah character. Okay? So that gives us a little bit of a snapshot of that. But there's something else that's taking place here. And I didn't give you the full info on it. But you might wonder, if you really look at scriptures closely, were there 12 tribes of Israel? Or were there 13? Now, on the off chance that you're in a life or death match of trivia, I'm going to help you out with this one, all right? So you can survive that moment. Because here's what takes place. If we look in the book of Numbers, which we won't do right now, but just going through it, it lists those who are the tribes and how they're being organized. And it lists Reuben, the oldest, and Simeon, and Gad, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and then it breaks and says the sons of Joseph, and it says Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. <laughs> Something else is happening here. And it's rooted in this passage of scripture uh, that we're looking at here. In fact, in Genesis chapter 48, verses 5 and 6, Israel is talking to Joseph before he blesses his sons, and he says, now then your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. I'm adopting them, in other words. They're going to have a certain role in the family that's going to be elevated. Any children born to you after them, they're yours. And the territory they inherit will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. So what is being said here is that Israel adopts the two sons of Joseph, so at that point in time, if you're going to have everyone have a tribal location, you've got now 13 tribes. But then there's something else that takes place. The Levi's, the tribe of Levi, wasn't listed in Numbers where I just read. The tribe of Levi are to be priests before God. They're the ones that are supposed to serve in the temple areas and in the places of worship. When they go to Israel, and even beforehand, they're dispersed through the tribes in a certain way. They never end up with a tribal territory of their own. They have cities and enclaves, but they're spread throughout the tribes with the purpose to serve God and to serve the nation in that way. When they're on the march in the Exodus, the tabernacle's in the center with the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant, and the Levites are surrounding around that, and then all the other tribal units are set up around that. And so the Levites are not given tribal territory. So you're down one tribe now to 11, except that Joseph's boys, you don't have a tribe of Joseph. They're split into two, and they're given that extra portion. And so now Joseph's boys become the other two tribes. So Levi's taken out. One of the reasons why Levi possibly was taken out too is something they learned in Egypt. In Egypt, um, if you track it earlier, the, the, everyone was taxed except the priests of Pharaoh. They weren't. They had a certain power and position, and they had land and territory, and you didn't touch them. In fact, in ancient days, there were three ways to power. It tended to be through a priesthood, through a military, or through aristocracy. Um, and so they looked at that, perhaps, and said, wait a minute, these priests are supposed to be servants of God, not to seek power of their own. And one little quick side note, if you go to England pre-Reformation, in England, you want to know how much land was owned by the priests, personally owned by the priests? Over one-third of the land of England. And there's a power that comes with that. 
So the Levites are to be dispersed. They're not to be power people. They're to be ones who serve. And in turn, Ephraim and Manasseh are adopted by Joseph. And so if you answer that there are 12 tribes, you are correct, and you will survive that death match. But if it goes to overtime, you're going to say 13 tribes, or you'll go down and die, okay? So that's how that works out with those. So you have at least an understanding of how the tribes work and how all that's taking place. That gives us some sense of what's happening in this last portion of the book of Genesis. Now, having said all that, the first portion of the book of Genesis is a dark, dark place. The first 20% of the book is spent in dark fashions. You have this bright moment of the creation, but immediately you have the fall of mankind and the sin that comes out of that. You've got um, thousands of years of, of things that break down from worse to worse. Cain and murder takes into place. You've got the flood. People are so horrific in what they're doing that God has to have a flood to eradicate the whole thing and set the rainbow in the sky. Something that was supposed to originally mean grace and humility. Things continue on and finally it gets to the city of Babel and people have, have been tossed out of this garden area and so they constantly are trying to make a city and it's a theme we see it of being a city, our own place with our own ways and things that insulate us from the rest of, of, of where God's showing us and doing things. And, and so they build this city of Babel so they can have their own identity, their own name, they say. And we do the same thing today. We continue to seek fulfillment through whether it's family or skyscrapers or achievements or accomplishments of one type or another. And 20% of the, the, of the first 11 chapters of, of the book of Genesis dwell upon this whole dark. There's flashes of grace in there and redemption, but they're few and far between. And it, and it just seems to get being worse and worse and worse until you come to Genesis chapter 12. And then it goes from thousands of years with uh, hundreds of thousands of people being dealt with, and it shifts then in, Gen in Genesis chapter 12 to focusing on one family. And for the remainder and the 80% that's left, for 360 years of time versus thousands of years before that, the book focuses strictly on one family. It begins with this man named Abraham. And Abraham is this man who's called out from his own city and he's called to be something special, to enter some kind of a relationship with God. And this term that he's called out from is an interesting term because it's the same term that's used in the New Testament to refer to those who become Christians. The term for the church is ecclesia, which means called out ones, ones who are called out from the world into a new kingdom, called out from the way things are to something new, called from serving our own selves to serving God. Abram's the first one of these, and he's called out. He leaves his place, and he's told by God in person that something through, through him and through his line is going to save the world. And so this new way of thinking, operating, um, all these things that are supposed to come into play are going to come through him. Intrinsically, we know there's something wrong with this world intrinsically, unless we're completely blind, we know that there's something wrong with us. We know that there's a dysfunctionality that flows through this reality. And we long inside of us, as Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in our hearts and minds. We long for something. We sense there's something more. In Abraham's case, he follows God out from his own land to pursue what that is. Only the most arrogant would think 
that there isn't thing wrong with this world or wrong with themselves. In fact, that's, that's really what, what the term blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the only unforgivable sin is. See, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. It's to have us be aware of the brokenness around us and in ourselves and to seek God and to seek redemption. But when we reject that, when we shove that conviction away, when we wrap ourselves in things of our own making and, and our own arrogance, that we become blind to those things. And it's like is said in the word, there's none so blind as he who will not see. And so when we reject the work of the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then yes, it's unforgivable because we never will ask for forgiveness. But those of us with open eyes, we know there's something wrong with this world. We know there's something wrong with us. And so this entire Bible is salvation history. It's all about God's attempt to restore us to himself and to transform us. And through Abraham, he says he's going to save the world. He's going to give a special blessing. And through that blessing, somehow there's going to be a salvation. And when we hear the term blessing, we think of it like, bless you, my child. Or we think of it as if you're down south, like, bless your heart. Which just means, I think you're an idiot in southernese. If you didn't know that, you need to know that if you ever go down there, okay? They're not saying that nicely. Bless your heart. He's an idiot, okay? So just as a thought. So we have all these different blessings, but the blessing that's talked about in Scripture, the term means deep fulfillment. We try to find our fulfillment in family, in career, building skyscrapers in careers, all the different activities that can wrap us up in different ways, and they all leave us empty at the end. True fulfillment, true blessing is seeking the face of God and receiving his grace. This is what he was wanting to create and run through the line of Abraham. And so Abraham accepts this, and he knows he's going to have this son. Finally, he has this son, and his name is Isaac. And this is looking great until God then says, one day, look, at I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to go to a place I'm going to set up for you, and I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham takes his son, his one and only son. It emphasizes his one and only son. It emphasizes that line. They go on a three-day journey. That's kind of interesting. Three days. I don't think it's Gilligan's Island that's in the background. I think it's something deeper. They go to Mount Moriah, a very specific location. And just as about the time he's about to sacrifice his one and only son, the angel of the Lord stops him, says, wait a minute, there's a ram over here. Sacrifice this. I provided. Don't, don't sacrifice your son. What's all this about? Well, Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. But what's really interesting is this is all, again, foreshadowing. It's all pointing to something. Mount Moriah, that, that place that Isaac was almost sacrificed, thousands of years, hundreds of years later, it becomes the Temple Mount. It's the most valuable, most contested spot of real estate on the planet. It's in Jerusalem. It's the place where the Temple was established. Currently, the Dome of the Rock and other structures are there, and the only thing that is left is the western wall, the retaining wall of the mount itself. Huge blocks of stone. 
Because in 70 AD, when the Jews revolted against Rome, they tore everything down. They destroyed the city and tore down the whole temple area. But there's this western wall, sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall, because Jewish people and Christians as well, but the Jews particularly would go there and they would wail over their loss and they would pray in deep desperation. To this day, people go to that place. As we go out in a couple of days, we're going to go to that place, some of us, and you can take a prayer and you can slip it in between the rocks. People thinking and hoping that because it's so close to what was the presence of God himself in the Ark of the Covenant and in the temple area that there's something special. But it was that place that Isaac, Abraham's son, his only son, was not sacrificed because God provided because there's going to be a time that he would offer his one and only son. All this is pointing in a certain direction. So you have Jacob, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, and, and then you have Jacob, his son. And Jacob is a deceiver. He's a messed up guy. And, 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 but he, he, he encounters God and, and the blessing he wants from his father he never quite gets. And it's a broken story of family dysfunctionality. But he does get that blessing from God. He wrestles with him and he won't be released until he blesses. He realizes it's not in these things, but in this that I will find my deep fulfillment. And God grants him that. And he says, your name is now changed. No longer Jacob. Your name will now be Israel. And there's a transformation Israel has 12 sons, one of them being Joseph. Joseph, as we walk through uh, his whole story, he is a type of Christ. He's rejected. He's betrayed. He's wrongfully accused. He's attacked by, by the, the leadership and the structure of the time. Yet through it all, he's faithful and obedient to God. And ultimately, because he goes to Egypt before his family in the time of famine, and God blesses him in his obedience, he's able to, to provide not just reconciliation for the family, but also salvation. The food itself is provided for them. This walks all of Genesis up until the final point in time where we have not only Israel blessing and then dying, but we have also Joseph himself dying. And that closes out the book of Genesis. And the next book, Exodus, which we'll deal with at another time, Exodus begins roughly with the statement saying, there now arose a king who knew not Joseph. There's a change in political leadership down the road. And the children of Israel, as they're now being called for the first time, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, now are changing from a favored position to something else. And they become enslaved in Israel, or in Egypt rather, because of this new king and new leadership and the political situation changing. You know the story enough and we'll deal with it another time, but for the moment, Moses comes along sent by God to free them from their slavery. A powerful image that has been used throughout time in many different situations because it's so powerful in this liberating moment. There's 10 plagues and Pharaoh holds out until the final plague. The final plague is this. There's going to be the angel of death. He's going to come and he's going to kill anyone in the house. Well, let's be specific. The firstborn male child of the house. Out of curiosity, how many of you are firstborns? Just curious. You're all dead. <laughs> I'm secondborn. I'm cool. <laughs> Think of how many that was. Raise that up again. I'm just curious. Firstborns. Bunches y'all. Now think of that. The angel of death comes along, and anybody who has not done one specific thing 
unless they have killed a lamb, an innocent lamb without blemish, and taken the blood of that lamb and spread it over the doorpost of the house, unless they have done that, there's going to be death in that house. But if the angel of death sees that blood, then they will pass over that house. This breaks Pharaoh, and he lets them go. The children of Israel never forget it. And so they celebrate Passover still to this day, the time that they were liberated, the time that the angel of death passed over upon seeing the blood of an innocent lamb spread across a doorpost. It's what points to communion because Jesus takes that same event and, and gives it the meaning that it actually was supposed to have. This whole thing culminates in the cross of Jesus Christ. But it all begins, all of this begins in Genesis. It's where we get the first glimmer of God's grace. There's so much darkness in this world. So much brokenness and turmoil. You know, it's really ridiculous is people think pastors are kind of like isolated from that stuff. And I don't understand why you'd think that. We're more exposed than anyone. We're there when people die. We're there when so much of the other things that happen and it wears on you and you see it and you're hurt because there's people that you really care about and you know that they struggle with really deep and difficult situations. And it seems like that's, that happens so much more today it's affecting so many of our young people in situations and circumstances. And we can stay in that place and we become overwhelmed unless we read the book of Genesis. And then we realize that only 20% is given to that moment of darkness. The 80% is a story of redemption. That there's something that is changing things. Yes, it's a dark, difficult world. I made a statement last week that I, I regret somewhat now. I said, hey, they're getting massive snow in Southern California. Yay. You know, it's Southern California. They deserve the experience. But I'm reading now, and I'm saying, man, they're getting like 14 feet of snow, and these people have no idea. We know how to handle snow, and we'd find 14 feet to be pretty messy. These people don't have the tools, the equipment, and I'm honestly feeling somewhat sorry for them. Okay, when I was when I was in school in the South. Anytime there was like just a slight bit of icing on the roads, all the southern students would come to all us northerners and say, can you drive me to work today? <laughs> I mean, they were disasters. They had no idea of counter-steering or pumping your brakes. This is pre-ABS. And they would come to us and, can you take us to work? There are fellow classmates. There are fellow students at a Christian school. Of course, we said, 50 bucks. <laughs> How much is your life worth? It is a messed up world. It is a difficult world. We know this is a fallen world. And there's a lot of dark, bad news throughout the Bible and throughout the world and lives we live. But there is good news, and that is what the term gospel means. It means good news. It means that God is acting, and there's going to be redemption. And it begins in Genesis right at the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, 15. After the fall of man... God is talking to Satan, this dark spirit who's launched this thing. And, and he says, I will put enmity between you and this woman that you've caused to fall. Between your offspring and hers. He's not going to have natural offspring. He's talking about the demonic offspring. 
the powers that try to trip you up and trip me up, the ones that attack and tear at us and our families. It says that offspring and hers, and hers ultimately is going to crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who is this he that's going to crush the head? Who is this he? He is the descendant and the promise and the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of Judah, Ruth, Tamar. Of Rahab, David, Mary, Joseph. He is the, he is the one who the Passover pointed to and the communion looks back on. This he is, is the one that is the center point of all faith. The striking of his heel was at his crucifixion. A, a, a blow that was thought to have killed him, and it did, but he was not just man. He was also God. Well, was he God or was he man? Yes. 100% both. And so he's resurrected and rises up. And the whole purpose of all of this is to restore and reconcile mankind to God, you and me. You see, it's in the book of Genesis that we find the Garden of Eden and, and man and God walking in relationship. And we're told at that time, you can touch any tree you want except one. Don't touch the one. Don't eat of the one that has the knowledge of good and evil. It's your choice because God gave us free will. He didn't want robots. He wanted those who would choose to obey, choose to love. And we were doing fine until Satan comes along, whispers in the ear, and has us question God. And so they took of that. And now the innocence is shredded. They, they, they know sin. They know shame. They know darkness. And the world falls. But there was another tree in that garden. At the very center, there was another tree that was called the tree of life. And if you watch the dialogue that happens afterwards, God says, we need to have them clear out of the garden because by chance they could take eat of the tree of life and the sense is they become eternal at that point in time. Oh, God doesn't want to share. God is just being angry and mean. No, man now has sin. Man now knows shame. And if he eats of the tree of life and has eternal life, he will be eternally bound in that sin and that shame for eternity feeling those things. No, clear him from the garden. Don't let him take of that. But Genesis talks about redemption, restoration, the line of blessing through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob resulting in Christ. And so then we come to Revelations chapter 22. And we see now there's a city that's of God, not of man. And we see right in the center of it something special. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God. There's this river flowing from the throne of God. And the lamb, which is Jesus Christ, sacrificed for the sins of the world, blood spread over the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over. And this flows down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood what? The tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its uh, fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. 
Right in the center of the city of God is this new, the tree of life. In other words, what's happening is from Genesis to Revelation, the story of redemption, the story of sin and brokenness, but also of salvation and grace to move us along to the point where we once again will stand in the presence of God And this time, the tree of life and eternity is available to us. This time, the garden of Eden is restored. This time, the relationship that has been broken between God and man now comes back together in harmony, restored by the blood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice so that God looks upon him and his righteousness and not upon our sin and our failing. And it goes on to say in Revelation that they'll see his face. We will see his face and that his name will be on our foreheads There'll be no more night. We don't need light of a lamp or light of the sun for the Lord God will give us light. The darkness of this world, all will be eliminated. This conversation has literally just scratched the innocence, scratched the surface rather, of what God is restoring, the innocence of mankind, the innocence we once had before we fell into sin. And for those of us who in humility recognize his grace and receive Christ's sacrifice, we are given the the, the ability to be called Christians. Little Christ. And sometimes, sometimes it's very, very little. But there's something that Christ is doing to restore his people to draw us back to the innocence of the garden, to draw us back into relationship with him. Yes, the world is full of darkness, and yes, there are demonic elements that drive all the time, but God has provided something in the midst of that darkness, and ultimately, the darkness falls and the light stands. For those of us that have accepted this truth, for those of us that have been aware of our sin, that we repent of that, we offer that up to God, we believe in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, then no works are involved. It's strictly faith. But by that faith, then we're restored. We stumble, we fall, we get up again. We stumble and fall, we get up again. But we're never alone, and he walks with us. And if that's where you're at today, then you're welcome to join us in partaking of this action today, that by this action looks back at the Passover, but where we've been has looked forward to it, and have that communion with God today. If you've not made that decision, let it pass you by. Or, this morning, realize the millennia that has gone forward, the the great lengths God has gone to seek you and to save you, to restore to you the innocence, to restore to you that relationship. This morning, even now, before these things are are distributed. Repent in your own heart before God. Strip away the blindness. Open your eyes. Set aside the cynicism. Embrace the gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Find your salvation here, now, this morning, and join us. Father, this is a broken world. It was not what you intended, and we know that. And Lord, we are a broken people, and we have done things that we did not intend. Sometimes we have, with great intentionality, sinned before you. 
Lord, there are those I believe now in this place here that humbly come before you and ask for your forgiveness, that we repent of what we have done. We see now the great lengths throughout time and space that you've gone in preparing just this exact moment for those exact individuals. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts to receive of this communion, we repent. We ask your forgiveness. We receive this morning your grace, the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, David, Mary, and Joseph. Let us receive today your grace, I pray, in Jesus' name. The reason I'm into history so much is because that's what pretty much everything is about. You look through the scripture, and everything you see is basically history of one type or another. What we've talked about in Genesis is first talked about by Stephen before his stoning in the book of Acts. But there's another place, and I won't read you the whole chapter, but it's in Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. It goes by faith, Enoch was taken from this life. Didn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. By faith, Noah was warned about things he not yet seen. In holy fear, he built an ark to save his family. By faith, Abraham was called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise or blessing. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he's past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things they promised. They only saw them, welcomed them from a distance, and admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. And by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He would receive the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau regarding their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And it goes on and on. And what more shall I say, the writer says, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. All the restaurants will be closed. Who through faith conquered kingdoms and administered justice and gained what was promised? Who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies? You have just got a glimpse in this study of God's promise and blessing. Meditate upon that as you go about your business this week. There'll be those available here for prayer. If you'd like to come forward with prayer, next week we begin a new series entitled Real Love. The world's telling us what love is. They don't understand it. So we're going to break that down leading up to Easter.
Father, I pray your blessing as we would leave this place today, that you continue to guide us into your truth. Direct us, Lord God. We commit these things into your hands. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen.